This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Season 10 of the Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. I know, I know. If you're a longtime listener to our show, you're probably thinking, another Van Gogh episode? And I totally hear you. Since this show's premiere in 2016, I've featured him in two full episodes, including one that was so long in its original iteration that when I released it as part of a listener favorite season last year, where it was voted as one of your top favorites, I actually cut it down into two parts, because otherwise that single episode would have been over an hour long. I've also done bonus episodes on the theme of genius that has featured Vincent Van Gogh as the main character. And naturally, he's been mentioned in many other episodes as a cultural touchstone and an inspiration for artists who came after. Van Gogh is never really far from my mind, it seems. And so he pops up again and again. And he's popping up now, in the middle of our facts and fiction season of the podcast. Because like Michelangelo and Leonardo, there just seem to be a lot of myths built around this single artist. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In this season, season 10, we have been digging deep on some great art historical facts and fictions. In this episode, we're challenging that long mythologized statement about Van Gogh's output and sales. Did he only sell one single painting in his lifetime? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. In the second-ever episode of Art Curious, I began the show by discussing the myth of the tortured artist or the tortured genius. Van Gogh's biography has allowed us, us storytelling humans, to enjoy the sincerest myth-making, especially due to his unexpected and early death at the age of just 37. His death became the perfect catalyst for the elevation of Van Gogh the artist to the status of Van Gogh the cultural icon. By and large, this apotheosis leaves us with a romanticized and aggrandized view of someone's life and work. We love stories, and if the juiciest parts of a story aren't always 100% true, sometimes we don't mind, because it is so much more pleasurable for us to enjoy collectively thinking of Van Gogh, for example, and to sigh very sadly and wail, Ugh, what a poor man! He was so unappreciated and unloved during his lifetime. And even when we are wrong, and often we are, we still want to believe the myth. So we perpetuate it. We carry it on. 
the myth of Van Gogh as a distressed genius sprang to life surprisingly quickly after his death. Art historian Natalie Hynek notes that less than two years after his passing, the term genius was already being assigned to Van Gogh by many art critics and collectors. Drawn to the fact of his mostly solitary existence and, of course, his death, it became very easy for experts and the general public alike to appoint various adjectives to describe him. Words like disturbed, forsaken, tragic, mad, and, of course, tortured. And once these descriptions began to take hold in the public imagination, it just continued to grow. As early as the 1930s, some historians began to push back against the mythologizing of Van Gogh. I've mentioned this before, but I love to bring it up again because it's fascinating. In a 1936 article in the American Magazine of Art, Gertrude Benson proclaimed that the majority of information circling about Van Gogh was, as she says, quote, a kind of unscrupulous muckraking that sensationalizes the frustration, the tragedy, and not the achievements in a life that was obstinately dogged by misfortune. At best, the emphasis was on the poor fighter, the poor, poor sufferer. At worst, literary hackster spun a Poe-like tale of horror from the melodrama in his life or shed crocodile tears over a Christ-like hero who moved stumblingly but inevitably toward his crucifixion. Unquote. I love these words from Gertrude Benson because they are angry, and it's also helpful to note the cultural milieu in which she is making these notes. Because Irving Stone's sentimental embellishment of Van Gogh's life, Lust for Life, had been published only two years prior, so he is, in my mind, undoubtedly the literary hackster to whom Benson refers. So it's totally possible that she's reacting directly to Stone's book. Regardless of the circumstances, her words in the American Magazine of Art are correct. If there ever was an artist whose story was subjected to such hyperbole, it is Vincent Van Gogh. And one of the most blown out of proportion stories is the idea that Van Gogh only sold one work of art when he was alive. Sometimes you'll even see this story taken up a notch, with some error-filled online postings claiming that Van Gogh sold no works during his lifetime. Now, that is a pretty dire statement, to be sure, but one that seemed to hit even harder from an emotional standpoint when, in 1990, his portrait of Dr. Gachet, which we explored in episode 73, became the then most expensive work of art to ever be sold at auction. You can almost hear the handkerchiefs of the soft-hearted being pulled out of pockets and pocketbooks, dabbing at that single tear for poor, poor Vincent once again. And we think, if he had only known. Now, I don't mean to make light of Vincent's mental illness, his suicide and or suicidal tendencies, nor how difficult he actually had it at different moments in his life. And a happy ending is an easy thing to wish for, especially in a circumstance where someone takes their own life. But these statements just make things so much worse for an already practically mythological person. And what's more, it's entirely possible that Van Gogh did sell more than one painting in his lifetime, even if it wasn't a ton of works. To be able to fully understand this situation, we've got to come at it from a few different angles. The first is how the artwork of Vincent Van Gogh and others were received during this time period. Second, we need to consider what an artwork sale in this era really meant and what it could actually encompass. 
Let's begin by digging into the art of the last decade of the 19th century. By 1890, the Impressionists, a group of painters who sought to paint quickly and sometimes even in the great outdoors, with pure bright pigments often highlighted with a strong white base tone that brought a sparkly illumination to the surface, they had made it big. And those pigments they used, which were rapidly built up with thick and loose brushstrokes, were meant to convey the shifting and changing effects of light and atmosphere, as well as the fleeting and sometimes personal understanding of color. So, for example, what looks blue to one person might read as teal to another, and that kind of thing can make a big difference when you're painting the sky or the ocean, for example. When Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Bert Morisot, Mary Cassatt, and their cohort started this great Impressionist experiment in Paris in the early 1860s, they had to fight for attention, fight for their works to be seen at all, let alone to be understood. And at the outset, this didn't go very well for many of them. If you've read my book, Art Curious, you'll know that this was so dire for Monet in particular that he bemoaned his lot in life in a letter to a friend, noting about his rejection from the French Salon, the most important exhibition in Europe, saying, quote, The fatal rejection has virtually taken the bread out of my mouth, and despite my expertly modest prices, dealers and art lovers are turning backs on me. In short, he felt like an utter failure. By 1868, the situation had grown so critical that he attempted to commit suicide, throwing himself into the Seine River with hopes of drowning. Luckily, he didn't drown, but this just shows you that even just a couple of decades prior to Van Gogh's own time, artists who, by the 1890s, had been firmly established and rather popular and even financially comfortable, they had struggled mightily. And a lot of that simply had to do with the tastes of the public at the time. In France especially, that dang salon set really had a lot of standards for what was considered good art. If a painting was too different or broke from too many art historical traditions, it could not or would not be accepted for the official salon exhibition. Too weird, you can imagine a judge sniffing. Or not traditional enough, another might say. If it didn't meet the rather staid and academic predilections of the salon, then of course it wouldn't get accepted for exhibition. By the time Vincent van Gogh was trying to sell his works in the 1880s and early 1890s, he and others like him were taking the gains established by his impressionist forebears and were running with them. You can see their interest in thickly applied brushstrokes and an exploration of aspects of modern life in their works. But every generation seems to reject part of the ones that came before, and the so-called post-impressionists, a term that actually groups together a number of different, very different substyles, the post-impressionists certainly gave the boot to a few of the impressionists' big tenets. Instead of working swiftly to attain the just-so naturalism of a shifting ray of light or the change of colors in a sunset, the post-impressionists sometimes used unnatural colors and moved to occasionally distort rather than replicate the world around them. And Van Gogh certainly did this in his art. Take The Starry Night, his most famous painting, as an example. With those whorls of color swirling among the stars and the moon, and great waves of wind spiraling across the sky, overcoming the little town below, we know that we're looking at a scene of a real place, an actual town that was experienced through Van Gogh's own eyes. And yet, we know that no town looks exactly like this. 
The wind doesn't wave visibly over us in grand strokes of blue, black, and ochre. While he attempted to situate his works of art within what he called the, quote, guise of observable reality, unquote, and while he was overly critical of ultra-stylized paintings, it's still evident that his own works do carry their own stylization. A Van Gogh painting looks like a Van Gogh painting, and it doesn't look like a photograph. All this to say that, even in comparison with the brushiness and bluster of the Impressionists, Van Gogh's works of art were bright and bold. And though our modern eyes might be totally used to him, the potential buyers for his artworks weren't. But not selling gobs of art to collectors also isn't the same as being unloved or unappreciated. In fact, we know that not only did Van Gogh show his works in multiple exhibitions during his lifetime, especially in France and in Belgium, but he also showed alongside artists who would make it into our art history books as well. Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, Camille Pizarro, Paul Cézanne, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, and Vincent's great frenemy, Paul Gauguin. When he joined the Society of Independent Artists in Paris in 1880, their annual counter-salon exhibitions showcased numerous Van Gogh works over four years, including 1891, the year of his death. And apparently, it was through these higher publicity exhibitions that his work caught the attention of none other than Claude Monet, who had met Van Gogh upon the latter's move to Paris in the mid-1880s. Both Monet and Paul Signac, another post-Impressionist painter, vocally championed Van Gogh's works during their lifetime. But we are not here to talk popularity or even acceptance into the artsy it crowd in Paris at the end of the 19th century. We are here to talk money, sales, cold hard cash. And that's what's coming up next, right after this break. Come right back. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. You're a creative person, a visual person, drawn to story and eager to make something of your own. So here's something interesting that might be right up your alley. A program designed for both aspiring and established filmmakers. NYU Tisch is offering a slate of online courses this spring on screenwriting and documentary filmmaking using a remote platform with some very powerful and unique features. But this isn't the normal kind of online classes that you might be picturing. All basic videos and no instructor feedback or class participation. These courses from NYU Tisch Pro go way beyond that with an intuitive interactive interface and polished, clear visuals. This experience is designed to be digital from the ground up rather than adapted from a traditional course, so it looks and feels great at every turn. Whether you're collaborating with other students around the world as part of a virtual film crew or setting up a one-on-one -on -one interaction with your instructor, you can do all of it directly and seamlessly with Tish's platform. 
I like that there's one feature that allows your professor or virtual crewmate to leave comments on a specific part of a video timeline so that you can zero into directly what they are talking about. Plus, the courses are designed to offer total scheduling flexibility, so students can delve into the material at their own pace, reviewing video lectures delivered by Tisch faculty and produced by real-life filmmakers. Courses this spring include documentary workshop featuring participation from the New York Times Op Docs and writing for the screen, and no experience or background in film is needed. It's finally time to get that story you've been thinking about out of your head and onto the screen. The deadline for spring courses is January 12th, so act now. Learn more at tishpro.smashcut.com slash artcurious. That's T-I-S-C-H-P-R-O dot smashcut.com slash artcurious. Hunting down answers to your questions can be so rewarding. But when it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend to find great candidates with the right skills. That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you are guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process, so you can find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, included assessments, and virtual interviews. With Indeed Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your requirements. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy, and that everything can be done right there on Indeed, from hiring and testing to those all-so-necessary virtual interviews. There's no need to close out and set invites from Google Meet or Zoom. There's no need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interviews work from your browser, and it's headache-free. No downloads, plugins, or purchases. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com art. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com art to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com art. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to Art Curious. So, yeah, Van Gogh had his fair share of support and enthusiastic artist backers during his lifetime. But having Paul Signac proclaim your greatness doesn't equal art sales, now does it? But giving you all of this background about his stature within the avant-garde art world allows us to consider that Van Gogh's works weren't as necessarily neglected as you might have been told, at least not by the artistic community. Van Gogh was known, he was shown, and, yes, he was sold, too. One of the best resources that Vincent Van Gogh had was his younger brother, Theo Van Gogh, who worked as an art dealer. And what some occasionally forget is that Vincent once worked as an art dealer, too. Both Van Gogh boys came by this naturally, with a family connection. Their uncle, Sint, short for Vincent, was both Vincent's namesake and potential business mentor. By the time Vincent was five years old, Uncle Sent had already established himself as a successful art dealer associated with the firm Goupil & Company, 
which had branches in Paris, London, New York, Brussels, and beyond. It appears that Scent had much to do with the opening of the dealership's branch in The Hague, which he ran beginning in 1861. Vincent began working there as a clerk in 1869 and was later transferred first to the London branch and then the Parisian outpost before ultimately deciding to opt out of the art world as a dealer in 1875. From all accounts, Uncle Scent was saddened by his nephew's decision, but supportive nonetheless. Scent, who never had children, treated his nephew lovingly and as, perhaps, a surrogate son and certainly a business successor. But it turned out to be Theo who thrived in the art dealership realm. Theo joined Goupil in Brussels in 1873, then The Hague, and then onward to Paris. And his career thrived. It was a success that would end up being so integral for his brother's career, because it was Theo who supported Vincent, both emotionally and financially, so that Vincent could follow his dream of being a painter. In terms of Van Gogh's sales figures, let's circle back to that part, the dream of being a painter, because it is an important element that needs to be taken into consideration here. Vincent didn't decide to pursue a career as an artist until 1880, when he was 27 years old. Nowadays, it's pretty cool to not know or even worry about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And the ability and opportunity for self-reinvention and career change is common. Exhibit A, me, right here and right now. But it was far more worrisome back in the late 19th century, with Van Gogh seeming to flail about in search of his life's goal and its meaning. After he left Goupil and company, he worked briefly as a school teacher in London before moving back to the Netherlands to work as a preacher. Becoming an artist is something he opted to do only in the last 10 years of his life, and it was his fourth big career move. Remember, too, that while he had been exposed to the arts since he was a boy, he didn't have a lot of artistic training. So several of those early years of the 1880s were spent not necessarily creating sale-worthy works, but learning, making mistakes, and trying new things. And though the number of artworks he did create during his relatively short career, almost 900 paintings and 1,300 works on paper, while that was obviously a lot, much of it was essentially practice for this self-taught artist, and not necessarily marketable. Remember that Monet and the Impressionists had had the same problems with the slow recognition for their works. Now, the difference between Monet and Van Gogh is, sadly, a simple one. Monet's suicide attempt didn't work, and he went on to eventually garner huge and ongoing accolades. Van Gogh's attempt, unfortunately, succeeded. How exponential would his sales have been, or could have been, if he had lived? When we hear of the apparent single painting that Van Gogh sold during his lifetime, we hear it as this. The Red Vineyard, a painting from 1888, was purchased in Belgium in early 1890 by Anna Bach, an artist herself, and the friend of Eugène Bach, one of Vincent Van Gogh's friends. In fact, the same year that he painted The Red Vineyard, Eugène visited Vincent in Arles, where Vincent painted his friend's portrait. So it seems most likely that Anna Bach learned of Vincent and his works from her brother, and so she sought out his works at the 1890 exhibition in Brussels. From what we know from Van Gogh's letters, and he was a prolific letter writer, 
It was he who suggested to Teo that they send six canvases to Brussels to be exhibited alongside works by a group of artists known as the Vantistes, signified as double axes, the equivalent of saying that the group was called the Twenty or something like that. The Red Vineyard was one of the six sent, and it caught Anna's eye, and so she purchased it for 400 Belgian francs, probably the equivalent of something around one or two thousand dollars in today's currency. Teo reported back the news to Vincent, who shared it with his mother in a letter from February 1890, writing, quote, Yesterday, Teo informed me that they'd sold one of my paintings in Brussels for 400 francs. In comparison with other prices, including the Dutch ones, this isn't much, but that's why I try to be productive in order to be able to keep working at reasonable prices. And if we have to try to earn our livings with our hands, I have an awful lot of expenses to make up for. Unquote. Eventually, the Red Vineyard would make its way to Russia, where it is housed today in the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. And it is this single painting that keeps being repeated over and over again as the only painting Van Gogh ever sold during his lifetime. But it's not a totally accurate statement. And we've had to challenge the veracity of this statement for more than 50 years now. In the late 1960s, art historian Mark Edo Traubot published one of the first major biographies of the artist, simply titled Vincent Van Gogh, in which he writes, quote, On October 3, 1888, Theo wrote to the art dealers Sully and Laurie. In this letter, he said, We have the honor to inform you that we have sent you the two pictures you have bought and duly paid for a landscape by Camille Corot, and a self-portrait by V. Van Gogh, unquote. This, I'll have you note, is a full 15 months before the sale of the Red Vineyard in Brussels. But here's where things get a little touchy, because semantics! And I admit, I am not a huge fan of semantics. Let me just say that several historians have quibbled with Teo's use of the word pictures here. Typically, and I can speak from experience on this one, when people in the art world, even today, call something a picture, they are typically speaking about a painting. To be fair, picture can mean any 2D work of art, really. So what are the chances that the London self-portrait by Van Gogh was a drawing and not a painting? We actually have a pretty logical answer for this one. And we'll discuss that answer right after this break. Come right back. I love using the new year as an opportunity to plan out fun activities that allow me to discover new things about myself and new interests to indulge. And it's just as important for me to help my child to do this too, so that he can make the same exciting discoveries. And with a KiwiCo subscription, your child can discover something new all year long. Kids can find the joy of engineering and mechanics behind everyday objects, the science and chemistry of cooking, geography and culture from new places, and brand new art and design techniques, all through seriously fun, hands-on projects. I've got a Kiwi Crate coming to me, and I am so excited 
excited that I get the chance to share an opportunity to learn and have fun with my young son. It's going to be our first crate, and so we are literally counting down the days until it comes here. Kiwi allows us to get some super cool, hands-on science, art, and geography projects delivered to our door every month. We are especially excited about receiving the Atlas Crate, full of immersive, hands-on, STEAM-based activities that will help us explore and appreciate world cultures. It is going to be perfect for my little traveler. And everything Kiwi is high quality, so these are real engineering, science, and art projects for children and also for kids of all ages. And that includes adults, all of us who are big kids at heart. And there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel anytime. So redefine learning with play. Explore hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking all year long. Get 50% off your first month, plus free shipping on any crate line with code ARTCURIOUS at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at KiwiCo.com, promo code ARTCURIOUS. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2022, then why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Plus, you get to choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data that you will never use. By going online only and eliminating traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. So how's that for an easy way to make good on your savings resolution this year? To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped directly to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash artcurious. That's mintmobile.com slash artcurious. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash artcurious. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Art Curious. The question we now want to answer is this. Was Van Gogh's London self-portrait picture a drawing or was it a painting? The answer, it turns out, is pretty clear-cut. In an article in the Baltimore Sun from October 1998, journalist John Dorsey notes that the catalogue raisonné of Van Gogh's works, or the complete catalogue of all known Van Gogh paintings and drawings and prints, was published by Van Gogh scholar Dr. Jan Hulsker in 1996, wherein Hulsker notes that there were, in 96, 37 identified Van Gogh self-portrait paintings and four self-portrait drawings. As Dorsey writes, quote, All four of the drawings belong to the Vincent van Gogh Foundation in Amsterdam, which owns the collection that descended in the van Gogh family, and that is now in the van Gogh Museum. So they were not sold, and the picture that went to London must have been a painting. Unquote. 
But what's fascinating and so frustrating is that Dr. Holsker, the author of the Van Gogh catalog, The Van Gogh Expert, he was actually guilty of pushing forward the myth of Van Gogh, the artist who only sold one work of art. As he wrote in his catalog of The Red Vineyard, quote, It has achieved the rather sad distinction of being the only painting of Vincent's that found a buyer during his lifetime, namely at an exhibition in Brussels in February 1890, unquote. So weird, right? Dr. Holsker had this chance and the evidence in his own catalog to disprove this myth. Luckily, though, we are able to note that it wasn't just this self-portrait painting that Van Gogh sold as an addition to that lonely red vineyard. Louis Van Tilburg, who is today the senior researcher at the Van Gogh Museum and a professor of art history specializing in Van Gogh at the University of Amsterdam, believes that there are a few sales, according to Van Gogh's surviving letters. For example, early in his career, as Van Tilburg notes, Van Gogh's uncle, Cornelius Marinus, commissioned drawings, specifically 12 cityscapes of The Hague, from Vincent, probably as a gesture of support and kindness. It's really sweet, actually, that one of his first sales, perhaps, came from someone in his loving family. And Vincent, thrilled, mentions all of this in a March 1882 letter to his brother, writing, quote, Teo, it's almost miraculous. C.M. comes, orders 12 small pen drawings for me, views of The Hague, having seen a few that were finished for just a Reichsdalder apiece, the price set by me. With the promise that if I make more to his liking, he'll order 12 more, 10 but for which he'll fix the price higher than I do. So it's fine, it's going well, and it'll get even better." Unquote. But then there's more. As Van Tilburg notes, quote, Somewhere in Vincent's own letters, he mentions that he sold a portrait to somebody, unquote. We don't actually know what portrait it is, though we know it wasn't a self-portrait. And we also know that he sold at least one work to the Parisian paint and art dealer Julien Tanguy, and potentially more came to Tanguy in exchange for painting supplies. That's also something that Vincent, especially in his younger and poorer years, though by no means was he ever financially comfortable, that was something he did often. He traded his works, sometimes to other artists as a kind of creative exchange, and sometimes to local merchants so he could afford food and drink. It is not an uncommon tale. And depending on how you want to think about it, this bartering could be considered a kind of art sale. And the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam actually mentions this specifically on their fantastic website where they say that they believe that this does constitute quite a lot of sales on Van Gogh's part. Whether or not you, dear listener, consider a trade of a canvas for some bread and wine a sale is a personal choice. I can tell you this, though, from my perspective. It does make me feel a little bit better for our poor, poor Vincent. Though we might not be able to call him a successful artist during his lifetime, even with all of these sales or semi-sales, it is certainly better than nothing. And better, of course, than only one sale. It's not just the Red Vineyard anymore. And it never was. Now we know better. So the next time you're at one of those immersive Van Gogh exhibitions and you hear someone tut-tutting about the lack of Van Gogh's art sales, you can set them straight. 
and commiserate that regardless, Vincent always deserved more. We've got one more episode left in this season of Art Curious, and in our first episode this season, we began with Leonardo da Vinci, and we are circling back to him now and another one of his most mythologized artworks for our final show of the season. It is coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Thank you so much to Shella Seckel for her awesome research help. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our production services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Season one of their new show, Subgenre, is available now, so please visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support in this new year. To find our donation links and for more details about our show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on social media at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us in two weeks as we explore the facts and the fictions of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. Music